Craig Kimbrell was closing out the first game of the World Series, and I just thought about saying, standard, just another redheaded 46 closing out game one of the World Series. <laughs> yeah. In our this, which is welcome in, in Cornish. Welcome to the Daddy Unscripted Podcast. My name is Tim Wheaton. I am the host and creator of the podcast. I am the whole reason that you are scratching your head and saying, did he just greet me in Cornish? Yes, I did. And the reason is I do a different languages greeting and now a farewell at the end of the podcast in a different language every episode to help just broaden our horizons a little bit. And today it was Cornish randomly. So I'm very excited for you all to be here for this episode. Thank you for joining new if you've never listened to this podcast. And if you are returning, thank you for your abundance of loyalty to the podcast. I appreciate it. So today I am thrilled. Did I say thrilled before? Because I am absolutely thrilled to have this guest on the podcast finally, which is Ryan Dempster, former major league pitcher. And again, if you know me, you know, I'm a crazy Red Sox fan and I am a huge baseball fan in general, but Ryan threw the final pitch to win game one in the 2013 World Series when the Red Sox won it the year of the Boston Marathon bombings, the crazy, fantastic year. So this obviously is a huge thrill for me, and that's why I'm using the word thrill again, not because somebody bet me, I bet you can't use the word thrill 10 times in the first two minutes of your podcast episode. That's not happening. I just am thrilled. So Ryan and I had been talking about doing this episode for quite some time. So another reason I'm ecstatic not thrilled, mind you, ecstatic this time to have him on the podcast finally. And I will tell you before we get to the episode, and I'm going to jump right into that conversation very quickly and get you right to it. But first of all, I just wanted to remind you that the Daddy Unscripted podcast is a very proud burgeoning member of the Osiris Podcast Network. And I'm going to let a little somebody tell you about that right now. Osiris. What's up? This is Ryan Stasek from Humphreys McGee. This podcast is part of the Osiris Podcast family. Osiris is a growing community of music and culture podcasts, connecting music fans with conversation, commentary, and of course, lots of music. Osiris works in partnership with Relics Magazine. Osiris. Okay, and the business part of this is now done. Let's get to the fun and informative conversation between myself and Ryan Dempster. I am here today. I'm very excited. This has been over, gosh, this has been over a year in the works for my guest today, Ryan Dempster. We talked about doing this last year and then the holidays ended up kind of derailing us. So I truly appreciate you sticking with this and coming back to be on the podcast today. I'm excited to be here. I'm glad it worked out. I'm glad that we were able to uh, to iron out a date to make it work and, uh, and sit here and talk a little life and family and baseball and whatever else. Yeah. 
So I will go more into everything, but I know you are very busy with so many of the things you do, but also a little bit busier for the past a little less than two months now with your new newish born. Yeah, brand you new. Still say newborn. I, I guess you do. Yeah, infant. Yeah. I always like that. Like it's like infant, toddler, child. Right. The stages. Pupa. Yeah. Is in there like somewhere? It's like, it's like a butterfly. Yeah. <laughs> Larva. Yeah, your fresh hatchling is what about seven to eight weeks old now? Seven weeks today. Yeah. Congratulations. Time flies when you like, especially early on in their childhood. It's like, wait a second, hold on, seven weeks. I've already gone by. I haven't left yeah. the house. What happened? <laughs> so. And and you have three other helpers. How helpful are they? Uh, very actually. Um, no, they're they're very good. My my son is twelve. He, uh, Brady is, is a great helper. He always wants to do whatever, give her a bottle, you know, hold her, hang out with her, keep her happy. And then my daughters, uh, are nine and seven. Riley's the middle daughter. She's a little jealous sometimes of the attention. Mm. She's still the one daughter who gets up in the middle of the night and wants me to snuggle with her. Oh, so, so this is a little, you know, it's a little like, whoa, somebody's taking my dad's time from me. Yeah. But, uh, and then my youngest Finley, she's seven. She's just like, it's like she has her own American girl doll. You know, she's like, oh yeah honey, rifling through the closet like what about this one we should put her in this one let's put her in this <laughs> you know, so it's it's pretty cool perfect age for enjoying that no doubt like just right right at that age where she just you know it's it's cool it's cool with her friends her friends are all excited that she's got a little baby sister and yeah she's she's all about it and you have to be stoked on brady especially like being at that almost teenage boy that he wants to be involved that's a huge bonus yeah 100 percent. uh you know like i thought at first that he was gonna maybe have the toughest time with it just because he's the oldest and he's the boy and now there's another girl and he's been the opposite of he's been great i'm sure that'll mm-hmm. probably change as the next couple of years as they get into that terrible two stage and then he's like 14 15 and <laughs> yeah. yeah i can drive away from this soon yeah, he'll be all about that. Like pretty soon dad's not going to be cool to hang out with. So um, little little sister is definitely not going to be cool to hang out with. Yeah. And were they all like that with the additions? Like when Finley was born, were they all kind of into her as well? And Yeah, he was great with her. You know, he was pretty young when uh, I think he's five. He's five years older. So when Riley was born, Riley was born with a, uh, some complications. Uh, she was born with a what's called 22Q. It's a partial deletion of her 22nd chromosome. So we had like a NICU in the house for basically the first year of her life with like a 24-hour nursing staff. So it was a little harder for him to be totally involved. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he's always, and he's always been great with her. Now him and Finley, on the other hand, as they've gotten older, you know, that's like, he never really had a chance to pick on his younger sister because of the health stuff. You know, mm-hmm. and so now he's making up for it with her. He just like, <laughs> he loves to push her buttons wherever he can, and she just he gets her goat, and she just totally bites for it every time, and he just he knows it. <laughs> That's a great dynamic, and I'm sure Riley is stoked to have missed out on all that. Yes, 100. percent Although her and Finley, they're, they're like uh, they're kind of like Blanche and maybe like Dorothy. You know, mm-hmm. like. They're, they're cool together. Sometimes they're like inseparable. Other times they're just arguing back and forth for a half hour. They, 
they're the best of friends and the worst of enemies and that they really are like, you know, joined at the hip, they got their bunk beds and they sit at the counter and do drawings all day together and love sitting there snuggling up on the couch, watching a movie. I caught him the other day watching some like, you know, like those live in Maddie shows and all that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. They're like not cartoons, not quite. They're like kid soap operas. Right. Yeah. You know, and they were like totally intently watching it. Like I was watching <laughs> Luke, Luke and Laura, like back in the, back in the day on days yeah. of our lives, like, you know, something like that. So nice. And what is your sibling situation and what is your wife's sibling situation? Um, I am uh, one of three. I got two younger brothers. They're what, three and a half and four and a half years younger than me. Mm-hmm. And then I got a, uh, and then she has um, three sisters, two older and one dramatically younger, I think 12 years younger. Amanda. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So all girls on that side, all boys on, on my side. And, uh, yeah, quite the uh, quite the entertaining group. I'm still super close with my brothers, and uh, it's it's been awesome to have that kind of relationship with them. Yeah, and that's I'm sure a very different situation for both of you, especially for you now having four females in your family <laughs> with the uh, three girls and your wife, as opposed to growing up three boys and the same thing with for your wife. Yeah, it, it very much, my poor mom, you know, like growing up because, and like my dad still to this day, you know, it's always, he always finds the lighter, or the humorful side in everything. Mm-hmm. Humorful is humor, humorous, the humorous side. Full He's of humor, all, good yeah. humor. And, and like dinners were always, you know, movie quotes and jokes and everything. And my mom couldn't get a word in edgewise and, um, <laughs> And then now I got a house full of estrogen. Well, not quite. I only got one, but eventually more and more of it. And it's going yeah. to be an interesting dynamic when they all become like teenagers. And, whew, oh, gonna, yeah. I'm going to take up like woodworking or watch a lot of Bob Ross videos in the basement <laughs> with an art easel. So. Yeah. I'm just going to be out uh, plowing the lawn. Anything? Just going to go shovel the snow, guys. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, yeah. it's July. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, you know, at least going to lay the, the groundwork down, a little salt or something. I mean, yeah, exactly. Take care of that. You can never be too prepared. Yeah. We'll just be outside being outside. So see you yeah. later. <laughs> yeah, that'll be, um, I'm coming up on that with my daughter who's 10 and we're starting to, you know, when my wife got her her first, like, not really training bra but kind of like a sports bra thing i was like oh my lord i'm not ready for all of this, this is <laughs> yeah i don't even oh man i just uh, i don't even know what to do like because you hear all the stories and you got to let them be themselves like, when they bring their first boy over and what i'm gonna do yeah. when all that happens and i don't know i'll just remember remember ted Lilly, the left-handed pitcher yeah yeah um actually made it on the hall of fame ballot this year pretty pretty awesome oh, nice really good friend of mine and and he uh he had a good one his dad um his his sister his older sister brought a boy home and then went out on their date she was like 15 they went on the date and then she came home and she instantly went to her dad and said what did you say to to my my boyfriend and he's like what do you mean and she she said well he didn't hold my hand he wouldn't he wouldn't put his arm around me, nothing. And he just said, I, I just said, have a great time tonight. Enjoy yourself. And just remember, wherever you touch my daughter, I get to touch you. 
Oh my, that is fantastic. That's a really good way to put it. You'll scare a lot of boys with that one, you know? Uh, I, yeah, I instantly getting taken back to my, uh, high school dating years. And yes, that would have been, that would have done the trick. Because we think, we think they know, like we, we think that the the 15 year old kid or 16 year old kid be like, but they're 15 and 16. They don't, they don't know yet. Mm-hmm. so like when you say something like to that to them or you're like you know i don't own a gun but if i was like cleaning a shotgun when they walked in with a smile on my face hey how you doing ben yeah. great to meet you here pull up a chair you know like there's part of they're scared that's just the reality i remember what that was like going over to like the nicest dad you know i dated mm-hmm. a girl in high school and she's the nicest dad but i was still scared out of my mind if you know, like he had kind of like a few things that he said where it's like, whoa, okay, I don't want to mess yeah. up here, you know? And like, that's as a, as an adult, you got to just use that power for good. You know? <laughs> yes. It's the responsibility of a superhero father to yes. uh, think about what they're using their powers for. So we touched a little bit on uh, your dad, uh, touched a little bit on your dad might be the wrong usage of that segue. But yes. <laughs> um, but we'll go with it. So, tell me about. Well, first, what year was your dad born? He was born in 1955. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I had very very young parents. Yeah, uh, they were you know doing other things at recess, I guess. Mm-hmm. Not getting those talks from each other's parents. No, not at all. I think the problem was that each other's parents knew each other too well. So, oh, it was, you know. We grew up in a really small town, very, very small town. So um, just outside of Vancouver, British Columbia, a little 40-minute ferry ride. It's not an island, but there's no roads that go there, so you have to take a boat to get there. Mm. Um, I guess you could throw on a backpack and like maybe horseback ride about 8 to 10 hours through the woods, but um, it's going to take you a while to get there. Um, yeah. Yeah, and so we grew up, like they all they all knew each other, but um, yeah, young, really young parents. I had a you know, young dad and proud of him for you know when i look back at it now he i can't imagine what that was like by the time he was 25 going on 26 he had three three boys under the oh, age wow. of five wow trying to hold down a job and like you know taking whatever he could whether it was you know uh working as a night watchman at a boom ground or going out on fishing boats for six weeks and um, trying to earn as much money for our family as he could. And then eventually, you know, working at the the building supply in our town and then just kind of started getting it together. He joined the fire department and as a volunteer firefighter and started taking his first aid and his ropes and ladders and, you know, all those kind of classes they take at the, it's called the justice Institute in Vancouver. And next thing you know, he got a job at the the pulp and paper mill in our town, a really good job and kind of, kind of really helped set us up financially, you know, which was always a tough thing for us. I, I always thought we just moved because my parents liked the new house, but I think it was cheaper than paying the rent. You know, mm-hmm. it was just like to the next place, to the next place, to the next place and finding, finding it and always making it. And as a kid, I never knew, like I never knew we didn't have money. We always had, my mom would wear the same pair of jeans for a year, you know, just so that we had the, the glove we needed for baseball or the, you know, shorts we needed for soccer or whatever it was they always made us the huge priority mm-hmm. as far as all that stuff so yeah he's really he really worked hard to get where he was able to retire early and was a fire chief for 20 plus years and wow um, 
yeah, really, really put it together. It's pretty cool. And we have a, a great relationship, a, a close relationship. We talk all the time. We see each other all the time. We go on trips together all the time. So it's a lot of fun. And does he still live out there in Vancouver area? He does. He's a, uh, he's a full-time amateur golfer now. Awesome. Yeah. So he's, uh, he's pretty much at about 230 rounds a year. I'd say he does Hmm. where, where we live, you don't get a ton of snow or even really cold, cold weather because you're right on the water. So a lot of rain, um, there, but he plays in that and he is the executive director of the Dempster family foundation, Canada. So he runs a big, huge charity golf tournament every year, which is kind of the talk of the town. He does that every June and we're going on the 10th annual one of that this year. So. Awesome. Yeah, he's uh, yeah, just a tremendous man. That's great. And with that foundation, that was started right after Riley was born. How how long was it after Riley was born that you started that? Yeah, pretty much uh, almost a little short of a year. So right, right around a year after she was born. And uh, just kind of started out of, I guess, just realizing that you know, when she was born and we found out at four days old that she had 22 Q and, um, which for people who don't know what it is, it's like I said earlier, it's a partial deletion of your 22nd chromosome. It's the second most common genetic disorder in the world behind down syndrome. Mm. But people don't really realize because each child is kind of unique to their own. I think there's, mm-hmm. uh, 187, 86, 187, different symptoms and you might have two you might have a hundred no two are ever alike and a lot of heart defects feeding and swallowing issues growth issues and then you have facial features anything from you know cleft palates to um uh, different different problems with facial developments and then you know internally it's kind of basically it affects you like almost like from like the middle of your face to the top half of your stomach Mm. and it can come out in a bunch of different ways and some kids are it's very extreme and some are very mild and with riley we were we were lucky to find out so early and and early intervention turned out to be huge for her and i think that's why we kind of started the foundation was to give a voice to it um a platform to talk about it and and a chance for parents to a say hey whoa i'm not alone with this Mm -hmm. because when when she was born we were we didn't know anybody that had 22q and then you realize there's this whole world and I, i just saw it the other day on good morning america uh, Michael Strahan and uh, his uh, female co-host, I can't remember her name, had Saquon Barkley, the running back, the rookie running back for the Giants was on there. And he was talking about his cleats because they wear these cleats for 22Q because his niece has it. Oh, really? That's cool. It was very cool. So, um, yeah, the foundation's been great. We've uh, done a lot of stuff. It transferred over now to the 22Q Family Foundation, which is oh, okay. uh, up, up and running and, and doing a lot of the same programs we we made sure that those continue to run and um, there's so many great people doing a lot of great work for it. It's really cool. That's awesome. That's I, I'm sure during that time of discovery that, and that was nine years ago. So you're talking about a time when social media wasn't really kind of happening hardly at all at that point. And so when you are, are you guys like trying to find other people, families or anything like that and it's it's much more difficult i mean not just because there's not a foundation but was it this big search that you were having to go through or not yeah well it was because there was there was a bunch of other names for it too there was vcfs there was it's it actually started as de george syndrome 
hmm. by the doctor who found it. And then they realized that the chromosome was the 22nd chromosome. So they went with 22Q just to kind of have a universal name everybody could fall back on. Mm-hmm. And then um, they, you know, just find there was chat rooms. Um, you went to CHOP, Children's Hospital, Pennsylvania was huge. People out there, Dr. Zakai, Donald McDonald McKinn, they really did an amazing job of helping us. And, and then you start to talk to other families and those, those chat rooms were the, they, they were key. Mm-hmm. You know, they gave you so much direction. They gave you so much help. And then that's what we try to do, provide that outlet for people to meet up with other people and, and really just drive awareness, get people to talk about it. And, you know, we had an incredible, a couple of different executive directors, Terry, uh, Brandunsky, who did an amazing job, and then Michelle Breedlove Sells, who did an unreal job of spreading the word and really helping and making a difference with so many families. So it was, it's, it's, I said Riley, by the time Riley was, you know, five years old, she did more in her life than I'll ever do just by the impact that she made on, on people on a daily basis. It was really incredible. That's, I mean, like, that's floors me to think about how much has taken place for you guys since then and how many people are involved in the awareness that's been able to take place is it's fantastic that you guys took that step and i know it may seem like an obvious move for people that these things are going to progress in that way but being the front runners on taking that on is as well as i don't know was there any kind of thought process that you guys are going through of hardship of that decision to start the foundation yeah well because a i already live a public life right and and then now to make your children and make riley this person that's in the public eye and and you're sharing your story like that and you have other another child is you know and you're taking attention off of him and giving it to her whether he, Mm. he doesn't know you're sitting there and going oh but this is for good brady he's you know, he's five years old. He's going, right. what, you, what about me? Yeah. You know, and he was so great through it all. And he, he realizes now the impact that it had, but at the time that's, that's a lot to take on and to make that decision. But, you know, you really realize that, especially given the platform um, and, and playing in the Chicago with the Cubs to be able to share that and really help people because at the end of the day, when you're done playing baseball, they keep playing baseball. Right. They don't go, Oh wait, Ryan retired. We should stop for a while. No, there's another game. Yeah. And, and it just keeps going and I'm not curing cancer, but all of a sudden now I got a chance to like really, really make an impact, not just like throw a shutout, make somebody feel good in the stands. I get a chance to like touch a life and, and change a family's direction, make them from feeling hopeless to, to having hope. And, and I think that was just super important. And I'll tell you what, like as much as we did, or we think we did the city of Chicago the Chicago Cubs, my teammates, the fans, the volunteers, the people that volunteered at all of our charity events, all those things, people like uh, the Melmans, Rich Melman and RJ Melman and, you know, my bu- my buddies with, you know, different like, you know, whether it was uh, liquor distributors to restaurants to venues that were like, here, we're willing to help people donating things all like that to me was amazing. The outpouring of support from people to to step up and say, yeah, I want to help. I want to help was absolutely incredible. And I, I still, to this day, I'm just forever grateful. I'm friends with so many of the people that were volunteers. We keep in touch. We have lunches and dinners and we never lost that friendship. And we bonded over a hardship and a terrible thing. And it turned out to be a, a monumental thing 
in the 22Q community, but also um, just a, a great way to bring people together doing doing something good for other people. And that's what life's all about. It's about touching lives and helping other people. And, you know, what, what good is it all? If you're doing good and you're not helping anybody else, then what's the point? Totally. Uh, and I talk about that in different ways and with people all the time of how your legacy can affect and so many people that you don't even know about so much of the time and are going beyond your life and going way outside of your circle. And, you know, I've always had this imagining of a really cool thing where somebody, this is not the cool part of it, but somebody passes away and every single person that had any kind of contact with that person and then they're being able to be a reaching out from that person that they were directly connected with, you know, like the seven whole seven degrees of separation thing and just how far people don't realize that they are able to extend their positive, hopefully and not negative, but their legacy to all of these people and that they just never know about is like what you said, simply, that's what life really should be all about. Yeah, it should. We walk around in society now with social media and there's a lot of negativity out there. You know, like Twitter is full of it. Mm -hmm. People always have, I I joked around the other day, I was going to send a tweet out that said, I really hope I don't regret this tweet. That's it. Just nothing (laughs) else. Just like, like just to see the reaction because it is so, but like, what good does it do us? Why, why do we live in a life like that? Where, you know, if you walk into a room and everybody's telling you you're great, you feel great when you leave, you feel good. You feel, you know, Jim Gaffigan, great comedian. He always said, you know, laughter is the best medicine after you have real medicine, but (laughs) it's, it's true. It's like when you feel good and you're feeling good about things, Good things tend to happen when you feel bad or you, you know, when you walk into a casino and you think I'm going to lose, you lose. Right. You walk in with a good attitude. You're not always going to win, but you got a better chance. And I think that's really important in life to remember that and treat people good. And we all make mistakes. We're not perfect. And I've made my share of mistakes and um, I haven't always treated people the best I could, but I try to learn from that. I try to make it better the next time, try to make it better, try to, be like, oh, you know what? Next time I see that person, I'm going to try and be a little bit nicer or I'm going to try and make the effort to um, be positive. And I think that really, really bodes well, not just on a sports field or in an arena or, you know, out there as a movie star. It could be the simplest thing, like go to a grocery store, put your phone down for two seconds and say hi to the person. They might be shocked right. because you're saying hi to them. They're like, wait, you're not like searching something on the internet and not talking to me? Yeah. But like, it, it really does. It, it makes them feel good. They're sitting there scanning groceries all day and nobody says boo to them. And you say, Hey, how's your day going? And it just really makes people feel good when you try to do your best to be nice to people. And I think that's something I definitely learned from my dad. I watched him be that way growing up. You know, the guy would sit there and, you know, like quality, I think it's like called quality street candies or something like that. Hmm. He, he, he would get them all for his secretaries. He had like eight ladies that worked at the office and HR at the mill. And he would sit there up in our little um, bonus room. And if you ever watch my dad wrap presents, it's the most incredible thing. He doesn't use scissors. He perforates the paper and then uses a knife and he cuts it all. And he's, and he's sitting there and he's meticulously going through each one of these and care like it's the last present he's ever going to wrap. Mm-hmm. 
And then to this day, that was 20 years ago. And to this day, each one of those ladies is like, oh my God, Wally was the best boss ever. I love Wally. I love him, you know, because he, it, it comes from a genuine place of really, really caring. And I think that's, we could all use a little bit of more of that even, you know, and it's not always easy to do, but just try to take a deep breath and remember that. Yeah. I'm nodding my head vigorously. <laughs> Good. It, it really, it's I like, can you feel that? Yeah. It's like outbreak, you know, the weirdest uh, analogy ever, but you know, this is a contagious thing. The, the good and the bad, like the trolls on the internet or on Twitter or whatever, who spread their negativity, like it ends up breeding that negativity. But just like you're saying, you are really nice to a person and their likelihood to be nice to the next person that they talk to goes way up. And then that hopefully and should naturally kind of carry on. And I mean, it may sound very Kumbaya-ish or Ghostbusters 2 with the slime of negativity. But (laughs) if you like spread that around to people, and this is a great Christmas message maybe, but then that should carry on to all those people. And how much better would this world be like i always say that very simply and i i always feel dumb when i say it but we just need to be more loving like if people would remember the word human kindness and be more kind to others like the revolution of that could do amazing things yeah and you know what it makes it makes you feel good right like that's the crazy part it actually releases endorphins in your own body yeah let alone just do it. Do it from a selfish standpoint. Be nice. Yeah, to be selfish. That'd be bad. Totally. Yeah, like you open a door for somebody at a mall, or you know, you're sitting there. Like, start small. Walk around the car and be like, "Here, honey, I'll open the door for you." Or mm-hmm. say hi to somebody. They look at you like you're, a, especially in Chicago. You walk down the street, like, "How's how you doing?" And they're like, "What is he? What? Stop looking at me. Why are you looking? Yeah, at me? you know." But it's it's just a really good thing to do to just practice it and it actually makes your own self feel good sit down at the bar at the airport and look at the person next to you and say so where are you traveling to have that conversation and and i think it's really really a a good thing and we get a little lost because we're attached to a phone 24 7 it's easy to drift off into instagram or i can play like bejewel blitz on my phone instead of talking to somebody but if you put it away we can just have that conversation and you end up getting on a plane and being like wow that was a really nice person like oh they're they're doing this charity event. I would love to help out. Next thing you know, and then you're spreading it around and around. It just becomes infectious and contagious. Just like you said, it is outbreak. People treating people good. Yeah. You know, it, what was it like people helping people? It's a beautiful thing, you know? And right. It, it really is an awesome thing. And it doesn't always have to come off like John Candy in planes, trains, and automobiles. <laughs> definitely, <laughs> definitely not. Do Try your hardest. Like, you you know, if somebody just wants to get home, don't go down that road at the hallway. Let them just go on their own. Uh, Just wish them well, you know, and just be like, hey, good luck. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back again. So you are um, a kid in BC area. And are you the only one of your siblings that's playing baseball or are all three of you doing that? Well, we're all, we're all playing. Yeah. Like we played, we played so much athletics, sports, everything. Yeah. I I mean, basketball, soccer, ton of soccer. I played a little bit of football, 
played a little bit of hockey, a ton of baseball. We just grew up doing that. And mm-hmm. my, my younger brothers played. My middle brother was probably the most talented out of all of us. He just didn't. He, he was always the guy like just, you know, like wanted it really quick and fast and didn't always necessarily want to put the most work in. Mm-hmm. But, he, you know, we just we grew up around it. My parents were playing slow pitch softball and we were little kids. And, hey, we need that 10th player, that rover. And we were out there standing out in the outfield. With it, so that's awesome. Yeah, it was just always something my parents kept us out of trouble, you know. Go play sports. Yeah. It's hard yeah. it's hard to go like be like, you know, vandalizing something when you're in the middle of a soccer field. You're just <laughs> out there having fun. So <laughs> And so you are then growing up and playing baseball through high school and whatnot. Are you going graduating high school and then going straight to a university and playing baseball there or how did that go for you i my dad still gives me crap to this day about it i turned down a full ride to the university of notre dame to go play professional baseball Ooh! and he's like you know ryan um, <laughs> that diploma sure would look nice on the wall uh, what if baseball doesn't work out and mm-hmm. i don't really remember he says that i looked him straight in the eye and i just said what do you mean and, <laughs> right that doesn't compute all right, then, if you're that driven. And so I, I signed out of high school um, out of the third round with Texas Rangers and signed to go play professional baseball and left from Vancouver, British Columbia and got on a plane and flew to Atlanta, Georgia, and then got on another plane and flew to Port Charlotte, Florida. And some guy named Parky picked me up at the airport and uh, drove me to a hotel and for a couple of days. And then I roomed with uh, three other guys and four of us in a, in a two bedroom apartment and uh, here I am now. All of a sudden, I'm in in a locker room with you know 60 guys in the Gulf Coast League. So that's kind of how it all started. And then you just wow. away you go, see what happens, guys. So how long was it that you? I mean, were you doing a year at single A, a year at double A, or are you escalating super quickly? Um, yeah. When I look back, I, I it felt like I was doing a year everywhere. So I, I played that year. Um, from I signed in like. End of July, I think it was middle of July or something like that, and then I went down to the Gulf Coast League, and then they called me up to the New York uh, Penn League, which was mostly college guys, but they had a good team, and they were going to make the playoffs, the Hudson Valley Renegades. And I got called up, uh, made one regular season start, and then started a game in the playoffs. Um, and then the next year, I went to spring training, and then went to Charleston and played for the River Dogs uh, on a low A team in the South Atlantic League, and mm. kind of had a, like a crazy august that got hit by a line drive during batting practice i was walking behind second base and ryan glenn was a pitcher on our team um and i said hey ryan you know you want to go get a drink of water and as i said water somebody yelled heads up and i did the wrong thing i turned and faced towards the infield of course yeah instead of just you know like turtling real quick i just wham and i wore it right in the eye socket oh and broke like four bones in my eye socket, broke the side of my nose, chipped all my teeth, destroyed the nerve. I looked wow. like Rocky Den. I remember my pitching coach, Brad Arnsberg, uh, former major league pitcher. And, he, and I had my face, covered, I hold my hand over my face, rolling around the ground. He's like, Depper, move your, let me see here. Move your hand, move your hand. And I moved my hand. He goes, no, 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 put it back, put it back. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was messed up. It, 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 I looked like Rocky Dennis from The Mask. I mean, oh, I'm not wow. kidding. I, I look like I went with Mike toe to toe with Mike Tyson, except I didn't throw any punches. Yeah, like it was nasty. And then uh, three days, three days, four days after that, I got traded. Oh gosh! 
yeah, got traded and, and showed up to my new team in Kane County for the Marlins. And they're all like, what? We traded for this? Team? Yeah, seriously. Yeah. We didn't want this boxer. Yeah, what's with this guy, man? What's wrong with his eye? Yeah. This must yeah, have been so, a great clubhouse guy. Yeah, totally. Great makeup. Don't worry. Hard yeah. hard working. You know Canadians, hard working. Yeah. Yeah, it was and then and then uh next year I was in A ball. Um then the next year uh went to big league camp. I was so bad. I this this is crazy. I was so bad the first half of nineteen ninety seven that John Bowles, who ended up being my manager with the Marlins in the big leagues, he was our minor league uh, field coordinator and he came into town. I think I was two and nine with like a 7.7 ERA. I had just gone back to back starts where I gave up 10 runs. And he said, what do you think you're doing wrong? And I started to talk and he said, why don't you do me a favor? Why don't you just shut up and listen to me? (laughs) And, and Bolsey went on this whole rant about, you, you got to you gotta throw pitches down the zone. You can't just blow the ball by guys in, in, in professional sports. You know, this isn't high school anymore. You got to throw your breaking ball for a strike. You got to make adjustments. And he went, went. And I had an unbelievable second half. Hmm. Um, really, really good. I think the second half of the season, I've got sub two ERA. And all of a sudden, I get a phone call in the winter. And they're like, hey, we want to invite you. And it's a non roster invitee to spring training. And I was like, whoa. They just won the World Series in 1997. Yeah. Now I'm going to big league camp. Well, this is when all the dismantling of the 97 Marlins went on. And, right. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was a whirlwind and then, um, didn't, didn't make the team obviously, but went to double A that year in Portland, Maine and got shortly called up after the season started. I think it was May 20th. I got called up to the big league. So it was, it was crazy. Like, Oh, here I was, I got sent out of minor league. I got sent to minor league camp by Jim Leland, the manager before hmm. minor league camp started. Interesting. So I just get my meal money right on a Friday and I get like, you get this envelope of all this meal money. It's like, it's like 700 bucks for a week's meal money. So you can live out expenses, all this stuff. I'm like, whoa. And they're like, uh, Jim Leland calls me off and he goes, Hey, uh, you're not going to make the team. So we want you to go down to minor league camp. And I said, uh, Hey Jim, minor league camp doesn't start for three days. He goes, go to the beach then. <laughs> I was like, all right, what do I do with my money? He goes, keep it, go to the dog track. I was like, <laughs> all right cool i'll do that too yeah. so i went i went to the beach and i went to the dog track it was a you know a good life life lesson don't ever bet on the dogs because you never really know the winner no it's not like yeah. the horses and yeah. uh yeah and then after double a and then i got called to the big leagues got sent back down and then to, to charlotte north carolina uh finished i made six starts that year in triple a and then uh the next year didn't make the team out of spring training had a really bad spring i was super nervous well, it wasn't very good. And then I went to Calgary, which was our AAA team of the Cannons, hmm. and pitched really well the start of the season and then got called up and spent the rest of my career in the big leagues. So it was, um, yeah, it was, it was neat to kind of like, you know, I didn't, I didn't ever really, one year I only ever spent a whole entire year in one, one city, and that was 1997. Wow. And was the minors just, was it a struggle for you life-wise outside of, on the field i've always wondered about this for guys because i know you're not making a ton of money um of course you're young but living on that and then are you going back home to bc in between and was it ever a thing where you were kind of like okay i'm gonna give this x more years and not sure if i'm gonna be able to keep doing this for this amount of money or was it always like this is gonna work i'm gonna make it happen 
Um, I think that the hardest part probably was, you know, it is the unknown. But I, I was so I was so driven that I just always felt like I was going to make it. Mm-hmm. Like there was no other option, and then that was just always going to happen. You know, I was lucky that I got a little bit of a signing bonus. I mean, I signed for two hundred thousand dollars as an eighteen year old kid who's you know parents, my dad, and I watched him try to earn every dollar he could, however he could. And all of a sudden I made more money than my mom, my mom and dad. Yeah. Combined, you know? It yeah. was pretty weird. But, and then the minor leagues you're making, you know, your, your gross income a month, I think was 800 bucks a month. So yeah, after taxes, you had enough for like a couple, you know, happy meals. And that was about it. Right. Uh, it was, but I just always just nose to the grindstone. It was never about the money. It was just about getting to the big leagues. I had a pretty driven, attitude i tried to pick you know if i ran into a big leaguer somewhere along the way who was rehabbing i I annoyed the heck out of him what do do Mm -hmm. you do how how much do you run what do you lift you know what's your throwing program like you know how often do you get him anything that i could find out i was always asking those questions so yeah i just i never it never really bothered me i never i was never like you know oh it's not gonna work out even even when i was like really really crappy i was never like it was like, oh, it's going to work out. I, th- I always felt like that was one of my best attributes, not my fastball mm-hmm. or my slider or, you know, anything like that. It was the ability to always believe in my next outing. So it was like, it's just going to be good. The next one's going to the power of positive. My dad always said, never underestimate the, you know, the power of a positive mental attitude. And I kind of lived by that when I played. Not to skip through everything, but flash forward to 2013. And that is like exactly the embodiment that I, think of for you like that was all out there in that year with with the red sox oh yeah what a year i played one year in boston felt like i played 10 i mean Mm -hmm. the attachment to the to the guys on that team i just i was at john lackey's retirement party this couple weeks ago and just to see a bunch of those guys and keep in touch we still have a group text message chain that's been going on for five years oh that's amazing it's it's mostly just making fun of victorino and david ortiz but um (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. No, it still is a lot of fun. Yeah, no, and and I tried to bring that. I mean, 2012 was a rough year for those guys, and you know they got in a lot of trouble for drinking beer and eating fried chicken. So what do Mm -hmm. I do? The first day at home, I brought in two big, huge boxes of Popeyes, and all the media is looking at me like I'm crazy. And I said, "Hey, guys, the beer is upstairs." Like, you know, like we're what are we doing here? We're trying to trying to win. And you know, Johnny Gomes asking him how he's doing on spring training is just another day closer to the parade, Ryan. And and that was just kind of our mantra and we didn't let anything stop us. And then, you know, to turn tragedy of, you know, April 15th with the bombing and then to triumph with a world series. And, you know, I, I still, to this day, I don't think there's ever been a championship one in any sport that kind of has been won by an entire city like that. Yeah. You know, nine uh, 11, when, if the Yankees would have won a nine 11, I think you, you would have, you would have been thinking that's the same thing totally. know, to be able to provide. And, and I think even though they lost, they provided that relief for the city, that that comfort, um, something for them to focus on, a positive thing for them to focus on. And, you know, we had so much support from the, the people there that we we felt like it was our honor to be able to go out there and play and give them a reason for hope, a reason for something, you know, to be celebrating when there was so much tragedy and, and heartbreak going on. And it just got contagious through the year. And, you know, to, to walk out of Fenway Park at 4.30 in the morning and see 20 police officers in full uniform chugging back a beer was probably the one of the coolest things. And you're just like, that's right, boys. That's for you. Like 
honestly, that really was as much as it was for them, for us, it was for them. It was for all the first responders, you know, to watch an entire city basically go into martial law and just say, we're, we're, whatever you say to do, we'll do. And we're going to come together and we were unstoppable. You couldn't, you couldn't beat us that year. Like we were just, you know, the cute little team from St. Louis came in at the end and tried, but nothing, (laughs) nothing was going to beat us. Cute little team from St. Louis. Yeah. Uh, I like that. <laughs> yeah. Were you, I, I mean, I assume you're living in Boston during that year, but is your family moving with you on all of these changes from teams or are they not in Boston during that time? Uh, they were back and my kids would come back and forth. So, it, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a tough year on, on a personal standpoint and just going through some stuff, but you know, they, uh, yeah, it, w- it was neat. My son, you know, he spent a lot of time. I still remember him and and uh, Kaz Uahara, Koji's son, spraying sprayed on each other after we beat the Tigers to go to the World Series. And, awesome. You know, in the locker room, you know, probably closetly opening their mouth while there's like champagne going everywhere. But yeah. They were doing it with Sprite cans, and it was just really it was cool to watch them taking ground balls during big league batting practice. You know, David Ortiz's son's D's over at third base, Brady's at second, Kaz is at short, and they're taking ground balls from Brian Butterfield. And I'm like going on here man this is just absolutely magical so yeah yeah it was a a pretty amazing year and at the end of it all four four o'clock in the morning throwing batting practice at Fenway Park to my mom my dad my uncle Russ my auntie Barb my best friend my brother my cousin a bunch of people and Michael Malley the actor some of his friends Hmm. um it just sat there and and just had a blast and uh, it was just yeah what an incredible season yeah now in your years with the Cubs, which is where you were when Riley was born, talk about some of the you you were talking about this earlier about how good Chicago was, and you know you do live there and still have a large tie to the city and the organization. Go back to some of that and how how that year was when Riley was born and how they were for you and your wife. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. It was. It was great. Like the fans were amazing. I always wanted to play in Chicago and be a member of the Cubs. So I made my first major league start at Wrigley Field as a member of the Marlins, and I was just like, I got to play here. And um, you know, to be a part of it all, after, come here in '04 after the '03 season, and and then to get into the rotation again in '08. We had such a great team in '07, um, a great team in '08, and then um, just things didn't work out. We, we had the team in 08 to win the world series. We were built to win the world series. We were good enough. We just picked the wrong time to have a three game losing streak. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we bonded with a lot of those guys, you know, so many good friends, Ted Lilly and I are great friends to this day. Um, I'm going to go spend some time with them this weekend. You know, mm-hmm. Mark DeRosa and I great friends still to this day. Um, so many people and, and Jim Henry, the general manager was amazing, you know, bringing me in and giving me an opportunity and, you know, a chance to play for Lou. And it was just such a blast and really just, you know, get to embody to play nine, nine seasons in one town doesn't happen for very many people. And then to do it in Chicago, you know, I'm a cub. I, I won a world series in Boston. I'll forever be a Boston Red Sox too. And like have that piece of me that, you know, I'm so proud. I, I was so happy for them when they won the world series and, and not just them, people like the trainers, the clubhouse staff, people in the front office, the traveling secretary, Jack McCormick, those people. But to be here in Chicago, to be working for the team now, to work for Theo, to watch what's gone on over the past few years and gone from an atmosphere of the lovable losers and the hope it'll happen to it actually happening and a demand of success and, and winning. 
and and that's what the you know expectation is now is it's so cool and, and yeah you know it's so much fun to to see what's gone on and to see a team that wins 95 games doesn't make it past the one play wild card and everybody sees the season as a failure that's 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 when you know you're making it that's when you know you got a good team yeah you're finally making that complete mindset change of everybody yeah well and it started from ownership the ricketts family bought the team and they and they made that mindset change that it's not okay to be the lovable losers it's not okay um to just show up to wrigley drink beer and and have fun it's it's a you know we're gonna still do that that's still gonna happen but we're gonna put a winning product out on the field we're gonna put family and community first i think Chicago Cubs led all of Major League Baseball and the amount of money they give back to charity and what they do for the community. And it's really, really an amazing family. You know, Tom and has been the, obviously the spearhead of that, but Laura and Pete and, and Todd and even their dad, Joe, have just been incredible about what they've done, the way they've turned the neighborhood into something really special around there. I was just over there tonight taking my kids ice skating, um, uh, the, the rink they put outside of Wrigley Field. Mm. Even in the wintertime, it doesn't stop. So, you know, and now you have this quality ball, you know, product out on the field of these amazing young ball players, and you know, it's just spectacular to be a part of in any small way, and and uh, and then to be a part of it all in, in 2016 and watch it finally happen, and you know, just to to think of all of these fans that I got to know throughout the year, the people in the bleachers from Ken Kiefer who catches balls to Alan Miriam who's sitting in the left field corner, Phil Grinstead that I used to tell jokes with every day down in the bullpen, and. You know, you go along the lines of just so many people that are that are out there, and uh, Tom and Ginger Peak in the right field corner with their fifty-fifty that they do every night, every day with everybody in the right field bleachers, and to see it all happen for all those people who who put their heart and soul into the Cubs is it's cool stuff, man. It's really really awesome to be a part of. Yeah, it's great to hear from your standpoint about this because it does make you think about how many different people are involved and and on a lot of these teams have been involved for decades and all the work that they put into it and what that means to them as well to go to work every day i mean being the lovable losers you know anybody who was a part of that or i don't know who's a disaster of a team right now baltimore right <laughs> so if if you're working for the orioles like having to go to work Every one of those days, even if you are just somebody who's working in the office somewhere and just the yucky feeling of being that team for all of those months out of the year and hoping that it turns around and being on a team or a part of an organization that is downtrodden like that for so long must just be so soul sucking. Yeah, there's nothing worse than being mathematically eliminated on June 1st. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, ah, oh, great, we're out of it already. Yeah. Right. It sucks. Again, again, you know, and then you don't see any improvements or any any change in philosophy or any change in direction. That's that's always tough. And, you you know, as a player, you're supposed to just do your job. But it just like the, the positivity is a great thing, the negativity, like we said, it wears on people. So to see Wrigley, the Cubs – you know, the whole entire organization turn into this, such a positive feel and such a demand of excellence is it, it couldn't be any better. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. So as a baseball person, I'll ask this question now because I know I'll forget to do it later. What taking off Cubs and everything else from you, what team would you love to see win it next? Wow. 
not meaning like this next year, but to see an organization that maybe hasn't done it in a while, is there anyone would, that? Yeah, for for me, the Seattle Mariners. Mm-hmm. And it's not that they have. I mean, they've never done it. But growing up in the Pacific Northwest, you know, watching you know not only Ken Griffey Jr. but the Alvin Davis and Jim Presley and you know Henry Cottos and all those guys. Dave Valley. I remember when they used to have Dave Valley beer night at this local bar. Whatever <laughs> Dave Valley was hitting, that's what beer cost. Awesome. You know, yeah, I mean, and he was never more than like a 250 hitter, so it's kind of kind of sweet. That's a great but, idea. Um, you know, just, you know, for the people up there, I know a ton of people, and it's a great city, and I think that would be really, really cool. Maybe, maybe now, too, you know, if not them, I think after being there, I thought they were the most gracious fans in, in defeat. I, I think it would be awesome if the Cleveland Indians maybe did it. Mm-hmm. Um, their, fans were, their fans were so great during the whole World Series, and um, such gracious people um you know it can be very easy when your team doesn't win to act inappropriately or treat cubs fans bad it's almost like they were happy for cubs fans so yeah seeing cleveland win anything in the past decade has been remarkable yeah thank god for if it will you know that's what i told i actually asked theo that one day i was like you you did it in boston you came here are you gonna go work for the cleveland browns Mm -hmm. that we're gonna do next perfect place yeah so how difficult was it for you or or not later on in your career having the three kids and being quote unquote away so much? I know it's maybe a little bit different for a pitcher question mark. I don't even know that might be an ignorant question, but or statement about you being away from your family for an entire season. Was that ever something that just started wearing more and more on you? Yeah, it gets harder and harder. It's it's hard. It's never easy because not only you're gone half the time, but even when you're home, you're you don't get days off. You're always working. You're right. The field. You're you're there all day. That was one nice part about playing in Chicago. At least you have day games where it's almost like normal. You're a nine to five job, mm-hmm. um, and so you can do things like have dinner and put them to bed and those kind of things. So yeah, it just got harder. I, I'm glad I you know have had the opportunity over the past five years to be able to be around them so much. And, get baseball games and practices and taking them to, you know, gymnastics and doing those things and just being able to spend that time with them that you just don't get, you know, it's the hardest part about being an athlete. I think is in order to be successful as an athlete, it takes a lot of sacrifice. If you're going to just think you're going to coast, you're not going to play for very long. You're not going to have much of a career. And so you have to put the hard work in, but that comes with a sacrifice too. And that's your family. And that's, it's hard for a lot of people. They, they don't really see their kids grow up much and, I'm lucky that I got out at a young enough age for my kids where I've really watched them be able to grow up and, and be at the point where they are now and now to have a, a new baby and all that kind of stuff. So there's it's a lot of give and take, but as you, as you go along, you realize what the most important thing is and and that's them and, and kind of teaching them along the way and to be able to be there, you know. Uh, it's it, it sucks to sit there and say, oh, son, did you see my game? And you didn't go see his. Right, yeah. Well, I just want to throw a ton of praise to your wife, Kelly, I'm sure to a lot of other athletes' wives, but baseball, for how long that goes on, the sacrifice and the work that the wives do. I I know this is a dad podcast, but I always like to throw out that honor and praise to the wives because they do kind of make everything work, really. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, if it was up to us, they'd just be hanging out the field all day in the batting cage, 
you know, yeah. you have your four year old. What do you mean they got to go to bed? It's fine. It's extra innings, you know? <laughs> and that's kind of what happens. A lot of, a lot of kids, honestly, in that life, I think the families make a choice is like, let's just throw them in. They call them, you know, baseball kids. They, they live the baseball life because we're just going to put them to bed at 11 o'clock at night, and, mm-hmm. you know, especially while they're young before school, because that's, you know, this is what we're in. Let's be a family. Let's be a part of it all together. And it's almost like, you know, the, the son of a rock star. Well, yeah, you go to the concerts and that's, it's just what you do. And that, that's kind of how it is for a lot of athletes. I know that they feel that's the best way for them. And, you know, uh, and some of them, it really works out that way. Yeah. It is cool. Like what you were saying and kind of touching on that. Now you get to have that full fledged experience with Isabella, as opposed to what you, some of the things that not to, put salt in a wound, but that you might've missed out with a little bit with the other three being able to experience a lot of that now with her. Yeah. She'll be the opposite. She'll be like, dad, can you have a house? Yeah, exactly. What are you doing? What are you doing? Go get a job. <laughs> Leave me alone. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so what all do you have going on aside from the foundation and you are working, are you still doing color work at all? Uh, I do uh, analyst work for MLB Network, so um, working for the uh, MLB Network, doing that, which is tremendous. It's a great place to work. Working with a lot of guys that I played with, and, and right. getting up there and talking about baseball, which you can tell I, I love talking about baseball. It's a lot of fun. So, and then uh, working for the Cubs as a special assistant to Theo, you know, helping out wherever I can there, whether that's at the big league level or talking to minor league players or evaluating talent, going down that route. And then I started this past year, I hosted, um, I've been doing it at the Cubs convention for the past few years, but I started hosting a show called Off the Mound. It's uh, kind of a, more of a theatrical production, I guess you would say. It's a, mm-hmm. It tends to run about two hours, a little bit more, and uh, sit down and kind of like imagine Jimmy Fallon or Jimmy Kimmel, late night talk show, but with baseball players. And, you know, back in the day, the occasional athlete was a celebrity. You had, right. be, you had to be pretty famous. You had to be Michael Jordan, yeah, Ken Griffey Jr., or Mickey Mantle. You had to Joe, Joe DiMaggio. You had to be really one of the elite. And nowadays, social media and you know media in general, these guys, a lot of them are celebrities right away. And but at the same time, they're I know they're athletes, but they're human beings. And I really like to humanize the guy. I don't get up there and ask him, "Hey, what do you do about launch angle?" or how do you get mm-hmm. more velocity on your fastball? I want to know what kind of hobbies you got. You juggle. Let me see how many oranges can you throw up in the air? Yeah. You know, what, what do you do in the summertime, you know, or what do you do in the off season with your family or, you know, what, what's something you and your son do together? What's, you know, you sing, Oh, you karaoke, Anthony Rizzo. Okay. What do you karaoke? And let's get up and do that. So, yeah. um, and it was great. And we did it, we did it this past year for a CPS score, which was a Chicago public schools after school program, which is sports can open roads to excellence. And, Helps a lot of kids who normally wouldn't even be able to chance to afford or be able to get to play sports after school to be able to get out there and do that. And um, we're doing one again this uh, upcoming year in 2019. We'll doing a couple of them, but one here in Chicago that'll benefit the Special Olympics and just kind of taking it on the road and, and having fun with it and just trying to go out there and, and make people laugh and, and appreciate these guys. You know, we had a it was really great. We we had Sean Casey up. And Sean Casey told this whole story about wetting the bed in third grade. Oh. and and it was it was magical it was a 20 minute story and it was absolutely people were in tears you know he's telling the whole story about how he wet not his bed only his bed that he had a problem with that but it was a sleepover and he oh. wet the parents bed because oh. and, and it was awesome it was just so great to hear him well afterwards at the vip party 
this guy comes up to him and he's like, Case, I used to wet my bed in third grade. <laughs> and like he instantly became relatable, you know? And I yeah, think that's yeah. what's really important because we put athletes on this pedestal, which is great for what they do, but not for who they are. Right. Still human beings. I always said they put their shoes on one foot at a time, just like you and I, you know, except sometimes their shoes are a little bit more expensive. That's it. Yeah. And yeah. they're still goofy. They're funny. You know, they're, they're smart. They're witty. And it's fun to show that side of them. So we're just going to continue to do that and have a lot of fun with it. I love that because that's part of what I love with not patting myself on the, even though it is kind of, um, but being able to have these conversations with people and some of them are completely normal Joes that people maybe don't even know outside of their circle. But some of the other people that I've been able to sit and talk with, you know, it, it, it is really, we are all humans and we all have emotions and feelings and we all make mistakes and we all, we don't all pee the bed, um, <laughs> but I'm sure most of us have at one time. At one time, whether that was in third grade or, you know, last week. Yeah, exactly. Uh, or peed a little when we sneeze or whatever. But yeah, after a good joke. Yeah, we, we all have definite these lives that we live and what people know of us publicly or whatever is especially now in the day of social media you know you have all the people who are able to put their own very normal life on a pedestal for people to see like everybody's lives are perfect suddenly because it says so on their facebook or their instagram or whatever (laughs) totally so i love getting into just the normal life of whatever kind of person that I may be speaking with, because like we said earlier, like this is what life is all about is experiences and sharing those whatnot. Yeah. And to it, it maybe makes people realize like, Whoa, I can do something great too. Like I'm just like him or I'm just, I'm just like her, whatever it ends up being. It's like, Oh yeah, I, I can have success too because they're normal. They're not like superhuman. They just, have a superhuman skill that they honed really well. And I think right. it's good for good for people to see that. And it's good for those guys to get that out. And I think, you know, that's how I judge it too, is I think the guys that come on genuinely enjoy it. They like laughing and telling me stories. And, you know, it's it, the response has been a lot of fun and, and uh, I'm looking forward to doing more of it. Yeah. And, and it's cool too, because like a lot of my, I, I think the, guy who is one of the co-founders of baseballism who i had on here a couple of weeks ago we were talking and he was saying how it's a really good thing similar to what you're doing that a lot of guys like we sometimes have that problem with communication and that generalization about our gender can sometimes ring a little true where we don't reach out enough or we don't talk very much about our other things other than sports and weather and how big of a fish we caught last week. (laughs) So it can be good to dig into that a little bit and not only allow people the opportunity to share um, stuff from their lives, but to yes, humanize them more. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. Just like I've been, I've had a great time sitting here talking with you and, and sharing all these stories and catching up on my past. A lot of fun. Cool. I appreciate it. Yeah. So we will tell people that they can find you at your Twitter is, is it Dempster 46? 
at Dempster 46. And you can also check out at off the mound, which is, uh, which is the show that we'll be doing and kind of see some clips of, uh, of the past show we did. And then there'll be some stuff coming out at the beginning of the year with interviews of the guys and, and a few more things. And, um, as well as, you know, links to new shows that we'll be doing throughout 2019. And are you still doing, I know in the past you were doing some of your own stuff at clubs or. Yeah, I've been doing a little bit of a regular set at the Laugh Factory on Tuesdays and doing some open mics around the the city and just kind of having fun sharing personal stuff and kind of experiences and just kind of trying to get as many reps so I feel as comfortable as possible with it all. That's great. So any of you in the Chicago area. Make sure you're looking for, you're doing that under, or you're not using a pseudonym or anything like that. Are you? Uh, no, Laugh Factory, I'm using my name. It's usually a standard on Tuesdays. Every Tuesday, they have a, a lottery night there, which is a lot of fun. And then uh, then I do some ones around. I'll, I think I did one at Mom's Place, which I went under a different name there, Fred Garvin, which was kind of fun. Of course, Dan Aykroyd's character. Male prostitute. Absolutely. Um, just for people who don't know, who never watched that story. Yes, yeah. I just want to make sure we specify that as an old. I love how they droid. when they introduced me as Fred Garvin, only one person got it, which was really <laughs> cool. so was wow. Yeah. That just makes me feel old. <laughs> All right. Well, again, tremendous thanks and appreciation for coming on and sharing some time and stories with me and the audience. I really, really appreciate it. I had a blast, Tim. Absolutely, man. It was a great time. Okay, and that is the end of my conversation with Ryan Dempster here for the Daddy Unscripted podcast. Again, huge thanks to Ryan. Huge thanks to his family letting me steal him away on a evening before he traveled I was really appreciative of that. So I encourage you guys to go out and add him on Twitter if you're a Twitter person. And you can find Daddy Unscripted on social media, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, all under Daddy Unscripted. My email account is daddyunscripted at gmail.com. The website for the podcast is www.daddyunscripted.com. All original and very different stuff, right? So make sure that you drop me a line on there. If you liked this episode, let me know. If you have other guests that you're saying, hmm, this episode made me think that you should have blank in parentheses, enter name here. And let me know. And if you can help me get that guest on, introduce me to them. I am always looking for new guests, new dads with interesting lives, interesting conversations. They don't all have to have hefted the World Series championship trophy into the air at Fenway Park. They don't all have to have done that. They don't all have to have played on the same team with David Ortiz. They don't all have to have had that experience and ridden in a duck boat in Boston around millions of fans celebrating their Red Sox World Series championship win. It can be a plumber. It can be any normal Tom, Dick, and Harry. Do people still use those names when they throw out regular names? That's the way it used to go. But anyhow, I digress. So thank you again for listening drop me a line, leave me a review and a star rating on iTunes. I would love to get some more of those out there. 
As always, I will again thank Humphreys McGee massively, not only for allowing me to have their music in this podcast, but thanks to um, KB, who, former guest on the podcast, also helped introduce me to Ryan and make this podcast episode happen. So thank you to KB and also thank you to Humphreys McGee for letting me have the music as part of the podcast. I love having their music on here. I hope you guys do as well. And make sure you check out umfreeze.com to see what they have coming out soon. Again, make sure you also check out osirispod.com and find out about the other Osiris podcasts that are out there. Podcasts like Inside Out with Turner and Seth, where two guys talk with other musicians and bands about what it is that drives them, what they do, and plays a little bit of their music. I'm sure a lot of you have already probably listened to that podcast, but I can't tell you enough. It's a great one to listen to if you love music like I do. So check out Inside Out with Turner and Seth. And keep your eye out for the next episode, which should be coming out in a couple of weeks or so. Thanks again to Ryan. Thank you for listening. And I will now bid you adieu in Cornish, which is... Da Welles Duetta, which means see you later in Cornish. Have a great week. Have a great day. And I hope if there is one, even one thing that you're walking away from this episode with, go out and show some human kindness and some love to some people today, tomorrow, the next day. And I will have a new episode out in a couple of weeks. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, you guys.